Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined today by my colleague Giselle Donnelly and Julia Zosa, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Yuri Sak, who is the advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense, who is joining us from Western Ukraine. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Julia, uh, I want to turn to you uh, for a brief introduction of our guest and, and, and really setting the stage for for our conversation about the military situation on the ground in Ukraine and about ways the West can help. So if you have any initial thoughts, please do share them with the group and with our listeners. Yeah, I don't want to take agency away from Ukraine. I'll just put out there what we've seen over the last few days. Um, I guess the biggest news that um, people keep asking us about is um, Zelensky speaking yesterday in Brussels um, to the NATO forum and asking for 1% of the total of um, NATO armed forces, uh, not troops, but cap capabilities. Um, and so that means to me, um, beyond the 1% that can be debated, and some people are saying, yes, that's possible. Some people are saying that's not possible. To me, the most relevant issue here is what he's actually asking for. He's asking for fighter jets. We've seen the debacle and debated this um, on the podcast before. That's on ice. That's very misfortunate. Um, we um, also have seen him asking for air defense systems. Um, there is a coalition of the willing sort of that have proposed um, to send S-300s of those available to Ukraine, but we don't know um, concretely if that's going to happen um, on, and to what extent. Uh, we've seen him asking for tanks and I and I uh, keep um, seeing these um, uh, unconfirmed reports um, that with all the Russian tanks um, taken away from the Ukrainians, uh, from the Russians to by the Ukrainians, um, now they're actually having more that they initially have. So that will be one question um, to what extent we can be helpful there. Um, we've also seen reports um, of anti-ship missiles. To me, that makes a big difference if, if that's true and it's desperately needed as we're looking at the 20-something um, Russian uh, ships in, in the Black Sea. And finally, we've also seen the United States putting forth drones, but only 100 and only these kamikaze drones um, that can be um, used for single use. So I wonder to what extent they can be useful compared to what the Ukrainians already have, the amazing Bayraktars. We know what they're capable of. We see that every day on, on uh, social media. Um, and with with that kind of um, uh, assessment of a preliminary assessment, if you'd like, of uh, what is needed and what we can do more to help, I'd like to start there concretely and turn to our guest today, Yuri Sak, um, for um, uh, advisor to the current uh, Minister of Defense of Ukraine. He's joining us from Western Ukraine. Thank you so much. Um, Yuri, um, turning over to you, um, can you give us, um, as a start, an overview of 
what you guys need and what we can do more to help and how big the shortcomings are from the Western side in terms of resupplying um, Ukraine. I'll add one more thing. Um, I've seen in terms of numbers, because obviously the um, the delivery fluxes are not visible in the interest in the national interest of Ukraine. But I've seen recently President Zelensky say um, we need um, 500 um, uh, javelins, 500 stingers per day. That's not what we're getting. We've seen him recently saying what you guys ship in a week, we consume in 20 hours. So can you give us an overview of where our shortcomings are and how we can do uh, what we can do more to help. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me um, on your program. Um, of course, I'm sure you understand that uh, the military cooperation between Ukraine and our international partners has reached a stage where any disclosure of any sensitive information about the military support has to be weighed against the risks of uh, Russian aggressor attacking these shipments. So that's why today you will not be able to find any publicly open information about the exact routes, numbers, or uh, types of uh, weaponry uh, that Ukraine continues to receive from its Western partners, and for which Ukraine is, of course, very grateful to uh, the international community. Now, considering that Russia is now publicly voicing its determination to strike at the routes or caravans through which uh, military assistance will be arriving in Ukraine, this allows us to conclude that Russia is really afraid of the weaponry that Ukraine has been receiving prior to the beginning of the aggression and during the aggression. Uh, you can see the statistics. Russia is taking like really bad losses. Okay, uh, the number of tanks, the number of planes, the number of jet fighters uh, that have been downed. The number of helicopters, uh, these are staggering figures. If you compare them with any military conflict in, in which Russia was involved in the past 50 years, uh, you know, it's kind of standing next to the Battle of Stalingrad. Uh, so from that perspective, the weapons that Ukraine has been receiving and continues to receive are proving efficient because... 30 days, and today is the 30th day of this aggression, Russia was not able to achieve the progress that it wanted. Russia believed that this war would be, you know, a matter of a couple of days. But as a result, they are stuck in a war that they will never win. They are unable to win. They're stuck in a war where Ukrainian warriors are showing unprecedented resilience and heroism, even in those cases where Ukrainian army is outnumbered. Like, for example, if you consider that, you know, th this is, you know, this is understandable that Ukraine, for example, has fewer fighter jets than Russia. 
right? Uh, and we have seen even uh, reports that were published on CNN a couple of days ago, uh, interviews of Ukrainian jet fighters. Uh, so sometimes they go up in the sky and there's two of them against like 14 Russian uh, fighters. And they still manage to damage, to shoot down Russian jet fights. They still manage to win these air battles. Of course, there are some losses on the Ukrainian side as well. But nevertheless, um, Ukrainian army is showing great results in terms of the damage that it inflicts upon the enemy. Now, turning to the issue of what sort of weapons are vital for Ukraine now. The fact that Russia was unable to achieve any considerable advance on the ground, the fact that they are stuck where they are and they are, more, they are demoralized, they are unable to gain any ground. They are unable, listen, they are even unable to uh, fully occupy smaller cities, let alone Kyiv. They have been pushed back now from Kyiv, you know, 35, 40 kilometers. Um, because they're unable to achieve any considerable progress, any progress at all, they, are, they have resorted to the tactics of air bombardments and missile strikes. And uh, this, this is the reason why for weeks now, Ukrainian political and military leadership was appealing to the West with one request, close the sky, or alternatively, if there are reasons which do not allow you to do that, provide Ukraine with the necessary air defense systems, with the necessary long-range air uh, anti-missile systems. And of course, you've rightly pointed out that there is also a need in anti-warship missiles because the vast majority of the missiles, the Iskanders, Kalibers, they are launched from the warships and they need to be stopped. They need to be disabled. They need to be shot and destroyed. Because every day, these, uh, with every day, these ships are able to throw more and more missiles at Ukrainian cities, as a result of which more and more civilians die. Today, we can say that, and these are figures given uh, by the United Nations uh, Office uh, for Refugees, over 10 million people in Ukraine, civilians, have been uprooted. Almost 4 million of those have already crossed the internationally recognized border and are now seeking refuge in the European countries. Europe already has the biggest, since the Second World War, refugee crisis on its hands. And this is not the end of it. So people are fleeing because the skies represent danger. People are fleeing because bombs are falling. Now, for bombs and rockets and missiles to stop the fall, for people to stop to flee, Ukraine needs to be equipped with the necessary weapons. If this is not done, you know, nobody can predict how badly Russia is prepared, you know, to damage further Ukraine. And nobody can predict how far Russia is able and planning to go in terms of inflicting damage on Ukraine's neighbors, Poland, Moldova, Baltic states. These are all countries which are widely discussed, by the way, in the Russian uh, state-sponsored media. 
so they're preparing for something. Uh, Yuri, if I may just lay a proposition before you. Um, over the last week or 10 days, uh, something of, uh, certainly the Russians have run out of steam. They're, they're unable to move forward. And the reports that we get are that they're uh, digging in uh, in defensive positions, particularly north of Kiev and, and uh, you know, sort of where they, the ground that they have taken thus far. It, it seems to me that there's a critical moment here because the Russian ability to resupply is very uncertain and probably limited at the same time. Uh, as to whether uh, you all are able to assemble some sort of counteroffensive capability um, that 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 really could break through um, whatever defenses the or encircle or flank. Uh, the Russian defenses, particularly as the the ground dries out uh, later in the spring, and that that could be the kind of campaign or operation uh, again, if if the encircled turned out to be the encirclers to be able to capture substantial Russian formations and get them to surrender, would be really sort of a strategically um, important moment. Uh, that would bring home the realities of Russia, the level of Russian defeat here. Uh, Yulia mentioned uh, tanks. The, the world is awash in T-64s and T-72s and BMPs and uh, rocket launchers and things like that. So in addition to the, the longer range missiles, the ability to uh, counter Russian artillery and the aircraft that have dominated the conversation thus far. I guess two questions. What kind of counteroffensive capabilities would you like to have? And secondly, um, how do you think your forces could sort of digest that equipment to sort of quickly put together some substantial formation that, that could sort of uh, conduct that sort of larger scale, longer distance counterattack? Well, thank you for your question. Now, uh, let me begin by saying that for the last two or three days, we are getting reports that in some directions, uh, Ukrainian armed forces are already uh, implementing counterattacks. Uh, they, they are not large scale yet. They're not uh, sort of... Uh, of that magnitude that would be required to uh, break the logic of the war at this stage. But of course, they are great in terms of further demoralizing the enemy and uh, uh, demonstrating to the enemy that, uh, you know, um, their tactics are not working and uh, uh, the victory is very unlikely for them. Uh, as for the more specific questions that you're asking about the specific types of uh, military equipment needed for a more sort of systemic counterattack and more sort of long-range uh, counterattack, I'm afraid I'm not in a position to comment on that because I just don't have that information. This is all the information which uh, general staff uh, of Ukraine, they keep very secure and uh, but I assure you that they do have plans 
and uh, you know at the moment at the moment uh, counteroffensive uh, can take place predominantly in those places from which the civilian populations have been evacuated and as you understand there are certain locations such as Mariupol Chernihiv Mykolaiv right where uh, humanitarian corridors uh, right. thanks God they are working and thousands of people have been evacuated in the recent uh, week uh, which is great uh, but this is not the end of the evacuation program and there is a lot more thousand of people still encircled in those cities so uh, uh, Ukrainian armed forces are you know driven by the understanding of the value of human life and that's why uh, any military uh, activities that could endanger civilian populations are not uh, carried out for for a very understandable reason if i may um you were at the beginning of this conversation very gracious in acknowledging um western support and western assistance to ukraine um the sense that i have of of the western reaction to to russian aggression is one of complacency however um in the sense that uh, at the very beginning um say the biden administration and other western leaders uh expected ukraine to fold quickly to be defeated militarily you know overrun within a matter of days and and the fact that that has not materialized uh is you know taken as a pleasant surprise by by by, by the west but it's not one that would really make people sprint necessarily to action you know people are happy for the ukrainians to fight the west is happy to cheer from the sidelines now there is this almost triumphalist talk in some circles about the possibility of a ukrainian victory or or repelling invaders altogether and that's all well and good and and i certainly hope that ukraine does prevail in the fight uh but i don't think that sort of triumphalist talk is very good substitute for you know a actual western strategy and the risk that you alluded to uh which we see borne out by the facts every day is that as russians get more inept militarily they get more brutal towards the civilian population there was a report not sure if it's confirmed out of mariupol of a big rocket attack killing hundreds potentially of of civilians unicef reports that half of ukrainian children are are now displaced and i wonder um you know what is your message to the west and western leaders about why this is also the west's war right that this is not just a matter between ukraine and russians but why ukraine really is fighting for the rest of the civilized democratic liberal western world if uh, if we consider how the leadership of russia as an aggressor how they are interpreting the reasons behind their invasion you will see that ukraine was only a part of the plan this war is positioned internally in russia as as the war between russia and the collective west the collective west which according to russia again is hell bent on destroying russia as a state 
forcing it to disintegrate, collapse economically, and ending with Russia once and for all. Now, if you will, if we will go back a couple of weeks before the beginning of the invasion, you will remember Putin's infamous ultimatum. And it included very clear points that the borders of the NATO alliance must be pushed back to the level of 1991. Which means that when Russia is now talking about the existential threat to its existence, which can trigger it to use weapons of mass destructions to defend itself, I think everybody understands that nobody is safe, in Eastern Europe at minimum. And I know, for example, some of my friends are now in Warsaw, some of them are in Prague, and they, they are seeing the military training of jet fighters in those countries on a daily basis. You know, there are some, if you like, preparations already taking place because the situation is uncertain. Nobody can predict what's going to be Putin's next move. Because like you said, when they are unable to achieve any success on the battlefield, they resort to the worst type of strategies, which are targeting civilians and using uh, you know, arbitrary weapons uh, which are very badly damaging the civilian populations. So from that perspective, um, I think the Western leaders very well understand the real threat. But maybe they are just too optimistic and hopeful that this threat will not materialize. Ukraine was also very naive and optimistic when the first signs of the imminent invasion were voiced. And look where we are now. So these threats need, need to be taken seriously. And of course, there is, I'm sure there is a middle ground where the West can do more than it is doing at the moment without actually entering into the direct confrontation with Russia. But that again, that again is a matter of interpretation by Kremlin, because Kremlin already said that every military assistance provided to Ukraine by Western countries will be seen as the West's indirect participation in this war. Yuri, I think to us here on the podcast, and I hope to many of our listeners, this is a given that Ukraine is now fighting not just for its independence and freedom, but for the independence and freedom of the entire European continent. I am just afraid, and I think that's what Dalibor was was alluding to, that our leaders are falling behind compared to public opinion um, in their response. And even when they want to avoid direct confrontation, as you just suggested, 
there's a lot more that can be done. Now, one phenomenon that I, it's very new and I haven't seen people talking about it or understanding it properly, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts because you have a perspective on Ukraine, but also on the region um, that is um, that is deep and, and uh, well-informed. The one phenomenon that I'm watching for and I think can make a big difference, but I, I would love to hear from you, is foreign fighters. Their response to the fact that our Western governments have been trailing behind, but I do see people um, reacting differently. Now, we don't know what the numbers are, um, and, and I don't think it's relevant, but it's in the 10,000s. And I'll give you one example from um, a student of mine here in Washington who has who's military and who said to me the other day um, after class, um, if it wouldn't be, I feel bad for being here, I need to finish my studies But if it wouldn't be for my studies, I would be in Ukraine. Um, and so we see, we start seeing these videos of Americans and Europeans who are there to fight in defense of not just Ukraine, but of the, the free world. And they have a different voice um, from, from Ukrainians in that they can reach directly to the Western governments to ask for more, to ask for more support. And they've, with the big numbers that are there, they're advancing something that our governments were not willing to do. Um, so my question, I guess, to you is, from a public communications perspective, as well as from the strategic perspective of many of them have military training, many of them know how to use um, uh, weapons that um, the Ukrainian armed forces were not, uh, we didn't allow them to be trained in. Um, to what extent strategically, operationally, and from a public communications perspective, do you think they can and will make a difference in terms of Western response in the weeks to follow? Well, that's a that's an interesting angle. Um, I've not thought about this from that perspective yet. Um, of course, um, the fact that so many foreign Uh, how how should we turn foreign patriots of of democracy are here in Ukraine uh, fighting shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainian army? Uh, this is a very encouraging moment, and uh, you know um, Ukrainians receive very well uh, every report and every video shared to which you refer to uh, of uh, our foreign uh, friends defending our land with us. Uh, as for their ability to sort of leverage their presence in Ukraine towards changing the attitudes of their governments, I'm not sure, you know, because they're on the ground, they keep in touch with, uh, with relatives, with their communities. Uh, but uh, frankly, I haven't analyzed this as an opportunity Uh, and probably this is something we will uh, look into. If, if I, if promising. I, 
Yeah, because like I understand that they are an asset uh, in, in, in a good way, right? So they are advocates. They are people who uh, perhaps uh, could uh, sort of add more to this dialogue between Ukraine and the foreign governments. Uh, and let's hope that uh, this is an interesting channel to explore and let's hope that their voices can be heard and can make a difference. Uh, Yuri, we want to be respectful of your time. Uh, I have one last question before we wrap up, but also uh, on this podcast, we frequently indulge in what we call West-splaining, trying to unravel the peculiar attitudes that, that uh, Americans and other Westerners have. And I would just offer in this case, uh, a quote from Winston Churchill to the effect that America always does the right thing, but only after it's exhausted all the other alternatives. So mm -hmm. while the alternatives are almost exhausted, um, uh, blessedly the Ukrainian army has given us uh, an opportunity to, to do the right thing. And uh, I certainly believe that we're getting around to the point where we will. But my question really is this. Uh, apropos of uh, Dalibor's uh, comment, the success of the Ukrainian army is sort of looked at uh, in the West as kind of a miraculous uh, undertaking. And, and it certainly is that, but it also must be the residue of years of planning and preparation um, for which um, uh, too little credit has been granted. I wonder if you could give us your insights uh, about, you must have known this moment was coming and how you uh, have prepared for it. Well, I would like to, uh, first of all, uh, emphasize that this is not the war that began one month ago. This, for Ukrainian army, is a war that began in 2014 um, and, you know, these have been long years of hard battles in the Donbass region. So essentially the first wave of uh, our military personnel that went to uh, protect the country and fight against the aggressor were the highly trained, super professional uh, military men and women who have real combat, ex combat experience and Trust me, when, when they get the new weapons, they are very fast learners. So when we got a couple of weeks before their invasion, we got, like, for example, the anti-tank and law systems from the United Kingdom, right? They, they, they really uh, mastered the use of these uh, um, launchers very fast. And these, uh, these uh, handheld launchers have been very efficient in uh, destroying Russian tanks. So, of course, this was a surprise to the world, but the level of skill and professionalism and efficiency of the Ukrainian army wasn't surprised, wasn't a surprise to us because we, you know, we understand that these are people who have been on the front lines protecting Ukraine's territorial integrity for what, for eight years now. And during those eight years, uh, on a regular basis, and this is something which also has to be borne in mind. Uh, Ukrainian military was conducting joint exercises, joint military exercises with the NATO uh, military regiments. Ukrainian pilots were trained in the U.S. by U.S. fighters, jet fighters, right? Uh, so there are many things which sort of add up into this 
phenomenon of the Ukrainian army's resistance. Uh, and from that perspective, uh, you know, I can only say one more time that uh, we have the army, uh, we need the tools. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. This is also something Winston Churchill said. Lend lease, lend lease. <laughs> At least, as a minimum. Yeah. This has been a, a fascinating conversation and I, I feel like we could go on for much longer. But again, we want to be respectful of your time. So thank you from Dalibor Rohaj. Giselle Donnelly. And Yulia Zosha. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Yuri Sak, advisor to Ukraine's defense minister. Thank you very much. Thank you. I wish you all the best, guys. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, goodbye, and Slava Ukraini. Hello and Slava. <laughs>